Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 1.10, This New Canon is Fully Operational. I'm Kelsey, joining me today is special guest Matt Ford, and there's always a little bit of truth in legends. First, some podcast business. As a reminder, the podcast is on a little bit of a narrative hiatus as Luke readies for the bar exam. If you're expecting more of the narrative from Knights of the Old Republic 2, that is coming, but it's coming around the Ides of March. In the meantime, we're going to take some episodes to dive into other parts of canon and other Star Wars series. Today, that means I am talking with Matt Ford of the appropriately named New Republic about a little bit of everything Star Wars, but especially about how new novels are filling in the gaps in old canon. Welcome to FOTOR, Matt. Thanks for having me. So, we we bandied, bandied, band, bandied and bantered. Anyway, um, we had some topics we were thinking of going into, and the one that struck out that you most wanted to speak to was uh, about canon and about specifically like what the new novels are doing to fill in um, old canon and uh, plot holes created by the uh, notoriously well-plotted and totally coherent original and prequel trilogies. Um, where do you want to start with that? Well, I mean, I think the the best place to start with it was was where I did, which was uh, immediately after uh, seeing The Rise of Skywalker, the, the newest film. I sort of had this experience where I got out of it. I, I did not enjoy it. Um, and we, you know, we don't need to go precisely into why, but because it's a little digression, but uh you know, I, I, I want, it made me want to see how I remembered the other films comparatively. And so I went back and I watched uh, the prequel trilogy for the first time in probably 10 to 15 years. Um, and what I had was, was sort of an appreciation for what Lucas was trying to do, even if, if he fell short, in, especially in episodes one, two, and three, uh, of trying to build a story and a narrative that was more than just a marketing gimmick. It was more than just sort of a self-justifying exercise in making a film. Um, and that led me to sort of want more of that. And then of course the problem I had was that, you know, Lucas isn't running this anymore. So I started reading some of the novels and I, I you know, I, I went back and I read some of the ones before uh, 2014. And then I got into some of the newer ones uh, and I was surprised. Um, not that I expected them to be bad, but I, I was surprised at actually how good they were and the sort of complexity um, that they brought to some of the flatter points uh, in the sort of canon films. So what, what would be the, um, what would be the, the, I guess, the go-to example you have for some of the depth that was fleshed out here? Well, the first, the first one that really immediately comes to mind is uh, one of the new novels by Claudia Gray. Uh, she's done quite a few of them. Uh, under the new sort of imprint, and it's called Master and Apprentice. And it's sort of a narrative that takes place a few years before uh, The Phantom Menace. And it revolves around uh, Qui-Gon Jinn, you know, Liam Neeson, as we know, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, and sort of their early adventures. Uh, and at this point, uh, you know, obviously, 
Obi-Wan isn't a Padawan yet, but we see sort of an earlier phase in their relationship where the close bond that they had during Phantom Menace is not really fully there yet. Um, and that, you know, I thought that would be interesting to, to peruse. Um, but what struck me was how it delved into some of the Republic's politics and some of the surrounding characters and how it fleshed them out in a way I hadn't really seen in any of the other sort of associated content, uh, you know, especially with regards to uh, figures like Count Dooku, with regards to members of the Jedi Council. And with regards to how people actually felt about the Old Republic uh, in, its, in what they later realized would be its waning days. So, yeah, so that's something um, that sticks with me every time I revisit the, the greater kingdom of Star Wars. And I did, um, I did my rewatch of all the prequels before uh, Rise of Skywalker. We tried to catch up with all of them here. Um, which uh, meant that we ended up seeing Rise of Skywalker about 90 minutes after we finished watching Last Jedi, which is uh, not the way I recommend doing it um, yeah. for a variety of reasons. But with the one of the things that is so striking about, about the prequels and about the immediate prequel era is that at the start of The Phantom Menace, and like this is, this is execution aside, it is by design, that a little thing spills over into something that uh, rendered that tears the whole governmental, structural, political ordering of the known universe apart. But there's very little inclination on screen about that. There's like a lot of Jedi being worried, and there's a Chancellor being slightly inept, and that's sort of all we get in the Phantom Menace. So what is some of the stuff? Um, that Master and Apprentice brings? What are, what are some of the cracks we see in the Old Republic? Well, you know, I, if I could just jump off really quickly and, and get to that through another point, I, I think you actually raised something really well, which is that the, the films in general um, speak of politics in these vague terms, and then it sort of leaves us to fill in the blanks. Uh, and sometimes that can work really well. Uh, you know, I think the, I think the classic example of that is the scene in episode four where uh, they're discussing the Death Star and its power and how it's the new power in the galaxy. Um, and, you know, what will the Senate think? Tarkin comes in. He's like, oh, good news. The Senate's been abolished. Uh, and there's this sort of incredulous response from one of the officers. It's like, well, wait, what do you mean? Like, who's going to keep control of this empire? Um, you know, how are you? I mean, not just in the sense of like suppressing rebellion, but how are you going to govern it? Um, and you know, he says, well, you know, the, the regional governors will take control like him and, and do that. And, you know, it's a very brief conversation before Darth Vader starts choking the guy. But in that, those exchanges, you get some insight into how the empire operates that fills in the rest of the movie. Um, you know, that the emperor is certainly powerful. He's certainly an autocratic ruler. Um, but there's enough concern about the stability of the empire that something as dramatic as abolishing the Senate is not some sort of cosmetic change. It actually has substantial effects. Um, I think, you know, when I want, when you watch in, in, uh, episode one in isolation, um, when, you know, I watched that first, then I watched, uh, episode two and three, a couple days later. And I think what helped me see there is that you get a lot of that in that one too, that Lucas was laying a lot of groundwork in 1999 that I don't think he had the opportunity or maybe interest or maybe capacity uh, to fully explore. Um, you know, we know that, you know, he had a basic rubric of 
of the Republic has to exist. It has to have been nominally good. Um, and it has to transition somewhat believably into an empire. Um, and so he naturally looks and he says, well, what, what features would lead to that? Well, we can see decadence. We can see corruption. Um, we can see all these factors. And, you know, what the novel Master and Apprentice does is it, is it sort of draws out those elements that the film wasn't really able to. Um, the basic plot of it is, is that uh, there's a planet called Pijal, and it's in the path of this new hyperlane expansion. And this corporation, Zerka, which, which uh, KOTOR 2 uh, fans might remember, uh, is helping, you know, sort of clear this, this hyperspace lane. Um, you know, Pijal will become a full-fledged member of the Empire, or of the uh, Republic. Um, you know, but there's a problem. There's sort of political unrest on this planet. There's people who oppose uh, this proposed expansion, who, who oppose Zerka's involvement, um, and who are sort of, you know, posing a challenge to this young queen who rules the planet. You see echoes and sort of foreshadowing there of, of uh, you know, Naboo, the Naboo crisis. Um, but also at the time, she is, uh, you know, below the age of minority. So her planet is governed with the help of a, a Jedi regent sent by the council. Uh, yeah, I won't, I won't get too much into the, what actually happens, you know, don't want to give you know, away spoilers. But uh, suffice to say, what we see is a much more involved look at what day-to-day -day affairs were like in the Republic. Not just as a matter of Jedi whizzing around and doing things, but what it was like for people who lived there. And that mixture of not only sort of the flaws, the corruption, the existence of slavery, the powerful corporations, um, but also sort of the, you know, the benefits, the basic stability, um, the peace, so to speak, the absence of real armed military conflict, uh, so much so that the Jedi can basically function as, as peacekeepers. Um, you know, the, it, it really gives you a sense of what room there was to build. Um, that I think some of the, the post- um, Lucas projects have not done as well. I mean, I, certainly the, the sequel trilogy has done a terrible job at this. Um, but in terms of fleshing out, like, sort of the substance, you know, the meat on the bones of this, uh, it really gives a greater depth to what goes on. So this is something we, um, as we've been talking about, about recent stuff and about um, the uh, the television and cinematic stuff post the the lucas directed films one of the very interesting things is like the is seeing how much any of the properties um any of the the films or the shows show the star wars universe as a lived-in universe which is sort of the i think the key component of what makes um a new hope sing and set up the whole series so well is that you go from really high stakes media media res uh, galactic battle to um to a farmer to peasant life um and then you have to spend some time in that world before connecting it back to this big thing and we see like there you get um in the empire is a felt presence in moss isley um it's known of it has the capacity to strike where where uh Owen and Aunt Beru are living, but it doesn't, it's not omnipresent there until it chooses to be. But you have this sense that the world, that politics can intervene, that the military can intervene in the smallest parts of life, but that the life exists beyond it and outside of that. And then it's 
a struggle to find moments of what civilian life is like in any of the uh, sequel properties. Um, there's there's moments on Jakku. There's there's a little bit in in each of the in each of the sequel trilogy movies. But there's really, I think, the only property that does it um, in any real justice is uh, the Mandalorian, um, which gets and even then it's focusing on what is civilian life like for bounty hunters, which is a weird subset of all of that. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a small portion of the greater whole. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I will add that, that we see also a little bit of that in, in Canto Bight in, in Last Jedi. And I think that's one of the reasons that that movie actually had, I mean, in addition to the, what I thought was excellent, uh, you know, Ray and, and uh, Kylo Ren's story plot and, and Luke's are, um, but the Canto bite scene, I, I think, really added some texture and depth to what uh, was going on in the sequel trilogy that, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the two films surrounding it were steps back from. Um, but, you know, it sort of forces them to confront basic questions. You know, it forces them to confront what they're fighting for. And in in the original Star Wars trilogy, that was very apparent. It's that they were fighting to overthrow an evil regime um, that had corrupted the old Republic and seek to establish a new one. I mean, the Rebel Alliance, we call it the Rebel Alliance, but its full name in canon and in Legends as well has always been the Alliance to Restore the Republic. So you have a very clear set of, of goals, of politics there, um, you know, not depth things, you know, not, not a complex layered view, but you have sort of some sort of point to it. Um, and the sequel, tw- sequel trilogy didn't really have that. It just had sort of a, a very kind of Manichian good versus evil. You know, we support the the resistance because they're the resistance. We we oppose the first order because they're the first order, and because we blow up planets because we are very lazy storytellers. Um, but I I think that you know the happy medium between those not happy necessarily, but the sort of interesting medium is the prequel trilogy, where Lucas tries to sort of expand upon what he's already built, and in some ways falls significantly short. Um. You know, he, he, we can go into a little bit of what what they had planned alternatively. I, I mean, the thing that, that I remember most of all is is how surprised I was when I read that his original version of Revenge of the Sith had Anakin primarily motivated by, like, a Jedi coup. He actually believed, and we still see some of this in the final version, that, like, the Jedi were going to overthrow the Republic and they had to be stopped, and, and that sort of triggered his descent. Which is, I mean, not you know, is way more interesting to me at least than sort of the conf- conflict of of Padme and these feelings and what does it mean to be a Jedi? Uh, you know, if there was a way to do that well, it was not in the the original trilogy. But you know, the sort of political conflict there really, I think, would have added something. And that's something we see. Um, actually, we see it. Um... Told twice in television versions, the Tartakovsky Clone Wars, which is all the the short little episodes, um, does a bit of Anakin being both uh, very capable and then very distrusted by by the Jedi and kept on the outs. And then the Clone Wars show, um, of which a new episode is debuting as we record this, um, does a, a whole arcs of the Jedi trying to transition from this role of of peacekeepers and mediators um to the heads of a military and in the process 
becoming sort of a a political force unto themselves and then isolating um operating on their own interest and we get the clearest summation of this um in Revenge of the Sith, when Palpatine points out that the Jedi have their own interest in their power, and Palpatine is hardly an uninterested party in all of this, he is very keen on um, on winning the counter coup against the Jedi. That's that's sort of his his first consolidation play, um, and the arc in between. Um, we see a lot of that in the Clone Wars show. We see a lot of. Anakin's disillusionment, the the limitations of the Jedi, the power struggles between the Jedi and the Chancellor. Um, but the arc, really, of Imperial Consolidation starts with, with Palpatine getting uh, established as Chancellor, moves through emergency powers to um, Order 66 and the uh, complete extermination and uh, neutralization of Jedi as a force, but it ends with the neutralization of the Senate, um, which is a really interesting thing that the Senate lingers as long as it does. It makes for a really dramatic moment in the new hope. And the rest of the canon, of course, is uh, scaffolded onto that. But it is really interesting that the arc of Imperial Consolidation, um, really, it starts in, in Phantom Menace and it doesn't end until A New Hope. That's... A longer carryover. Uh, yeah, I think you, you're absolutely right there, and I think it works on two levels. One is that, you know, the consolidation you mentioned, we see it happen, especially from from uh, Attack of the Clones onward, in sort of the transfer of powers to from the Senate uh, to the Chancellor. You know, they mentioned they make a point of mentioning that over and over again, which I think was a, you know, a, a very in in hindsight now a very effective insight as to um, how that would go down. Uh, but also on another level, you see the Jedi, and I think this is a really good point you made, is that you see the Jedi acting as po- a political force. They're not simply neutral bystanders. They're not simply these sort of serene counselor monks, although many of them are. But to the perception of everybody else, they are they are independent actors with their own motivations and with their own interests. And what happens when those interests are not the same as the elected head of state? Well, we see that when they try to arrest the chancellor and then he cuts them all down. But, you know, the novels, the really interesting thing that they have there is that you have this question of what are the Jedi doing? What are their goals? Uh, There's a I I don't think it's anything to give it away. But, you know, as you might imagine, with this planet having a, a Jedi regent raises some interesting questions for that planet's governance in terms of the Republic. Like, what does it mean to have? this random guy with a lightsaber come in and start, you know, giving orders, running the show. What does that effect have on a native population and on its political structure and on its political actors to sort of have this, and I I wouldn't say it's a colonial thing at all. It's, it's nothing like that, but something akin to what we saw, I guess maybe, you know, in the United States, reconstruction is not a really good comparison here, but the idea of sort of a carpet bagger coming in and, just telling people, you know, how this would operate. Uh, sure, you have the Aegis of the Republic, which people know is not as lustrous as it used to be. Um, but that raises some questions about self-governance and about this kingdom and its stability that, that, I, I, that it explores. The other aspect, and this is something that, that Lucas really could have done more with in the prequels, is slavery. Um, throughout the, this, this, this Master and Apprentice book that Claudia Gray wrote, um, they run into characters who had experiences with slavery. 
um, and with Zerka, which which um, has you know an experience of slavery itself in terms of being slavers. Um, and there's a dilemma at one point with the with Qui Gon and Obi Wan of like, well, should they free this person? And keep in mind that Zerka is a corporation of the Republic. They're they're certainly acting somewhat lawfully here. Even though they say that slavery is abolished in the Republic, it's sort of, you know, still exists in some forms and kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudged. Um, what are the Jedi doing, these these guardians of, of good and order and justice? What are they doing going around letting people be enslaved, sentient beings? And I think this is something that Lucas had the opportunity to really delve into in, in, in uh, episode one, where we see, we see Qui-Gon Jinn, the, the wise, serene, Liam Neeson buy Anakin's freedom and then say, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have enough. I wasn't able to free your mother. You know, she's got to stay here on this desert planet and work for the rest of her life, uh, for no money. And for, you know, she's got a, a chip in her that explodes or something. I believe that's how they explain it. I don't know if that's yeah. exactly what it is or if that's what Anakin was just simply led to believe, but certainly the threat of force. Um, Qui-Gon, what, what are you doing? Like, you can just take her and go. You know, how, how good can the Jedi be? And, you know, this is another interesting aspect they raise. They only sort of raise this circumstantially. Um, because part of it delves into uh, this, this Jedi region. His name is Rael Averos. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he is another Padawan of Count Dooku, um, who we know from the Clone Wars. And this is well before Dooku is a Sith Lord. And it is sort of during the period where Dooku is about to leave the Jedi Order. And we know this all happens from the movies, but what it does is explain that Dooku sort of had these very idealistic views of the Jedi Order and their role in society. And he goes to Coruscant and sees them sort of demolished. He sees them acting as basically servants for the Republican structures that have been just filled with corruption and greed. Not totally corrupted, but still largely corrupted. Um, and he sort of has that sort of crisis of faith that ultimately leads him to conclude that it's not acceptable for him to stay in the Jedi Order because the Jedi Order is is part and parcel of this. Um, you know, I, I, Dooku is is really sort of also a missed opportunity in in the in the prequel trilogy as well because you have this excellent opportunity to sort of raise questions about the Jedi and who they are, and it never really gets fully teased out. You feel them almost building to it, and then it doesn't go anywhere. It's a shame too, because when you have Christopher Lee, you can do a lot. Um, and so, right. one of the things, so something um, that you you touched upon that I want to build up is that one of the things that is a persistent um, through Star Wars is that it is a universe where slavery exists. Um, on the margins, um, and especially when we see the margins and possibly exists. Uh, more elaborately through it. And it's really um, the only places we really see any of that confronted in any way. Um, we see that uh, we see Qui-Gon fail to um, do the responsible thing, even the self-interested responsible thing of rescuing a child and his mother. So the force powerful child doesn't um, lead to the end of the Jedi order say, but also you see it um in, uh, we see it in Canto Blight with the children. We don't know that they're it's, it's implied as indenture, I believe not, but it's all 
in that space where there's children captive, we see it. Um, the one thread, one of the many threads in the sequel trilogy, I wish they explored more was the um, conscripting of, of children into the first order's oh. armies, sort of Janissary style. Um, and then the other place of all things is we see the revolt on Kessel, um, which is also the only really time we see droids thrown in as sentient beings alongside um, revolting human or revolting uh, organic life. Um, but that's to the extent that the Star Wars has anything to say about it. It's only in little moments of bigger movies and um, or played off as like a joke or a distraction. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Can I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want this because we, we want, you know, talking about the novel. I don't want to devote this fully into bashing the sequel trilogy thing um, as much as I've been dying for, for the opportunity to do that. But I, I will say that I am, I am still dumbfounded that Finn's arc did not, is this, is this a safe place to discuss? Oh, this is absolutely safe. Or where this is a, this is a spoiler loaded uh, podcast. I'll, I'll avoid it for the novel since I'm trying to kind of evangelize them here, but I'll say for uh, the film, how in the world they did not have Finn like give some sort of Captain America in, in Winter Soldier speech, like urging them all to rise up and sort of overthrow the Empire that way. I cannot imagine how that arc did not develop, given it was the natural progression of him first escaping that experience and then confronting it and finally overthrowing it. How how did they miss that? I yeah yeah I, this is an uh, no it's a it's a confounding thing especially when the problem that uh, Rise of Skywalker needed to solve um, I mean it had a, it had a lot to do it had a tight timeline but one of the big problems is how do you have a triumph if Leia's call failed. What is the catalyzing event? What is the catalyzing thing? And what we get in the movie is that uh, people listen to Lando instead, which like, I'm glad Lando is there. I'm glad Lando gets, is, is part of the, the trilogy, but they mention, and this is something like mentioned individual dictionary and not really touched upon um, in the movie that there are still scenes that reference it, that play super weird is that Lando had children, at least one child, who was taken by the First Order. If you have the end result, that massive popular uprising against the Sith fleet, or you could have done it in a whole number of ways, but if you have a popular, if you want to end on a popular uprising, and you have the story component of children are abducted and conscripted into these armies, then that's a story in and of itself to explore and one that uh, challenges um, that resonates throughout, right? That uh, people get plucked out of their lives to be pulled into these big wars that Anakin um, is found and, and pulled into uh, the heights of galactic importance. That's a through line that could have been explored. Um, and it's good to see that the the disconnect between um, Jedi ideals and uh, and Jedi practice is explored at least outside of um, of the films, but it's always underwhelming when 
when the films don't touch upon the the source material they could be drawing from. What one of you know, just to build off, that, I, I will say that it's such a brilliant reversal from how the rest of the films went um, to have a former stormtrooper be the main character. Uh, because, you know, for the original trilogy, stormtroopers were these kind of just like faceless guys. We assume tons of them died in the Death Stars. We assume that they could just get shot. There's no sort of reflection or, or consideration of their personhood. Um, and then Lucas, you know, for better or for worse, there's a whole, you could have an endless narrative debate about this. But he chooses willfully to have the big enemy in the prequel trilogy be sort of droid, so you can avoid the whole moral question about killing them in mass numbers entirely. Um, but so for the, the, the six original films, you have um, the sort of faceless, monotonous villain that the, the viewer is not urged to have any sort of sympathy or for compassion for. And then you brilliantly turn that on its head by saying, look, these are not just like willful dudes who signed up to be Imperial like oppressors and kill uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru for like fun. You know, that's, this is, this is not like, you know, hardcore fascist. These aren't the guys marching at Charlottesville, just like stoked to do this. They're being forced to, they're being compelled to, they've been brainwashed to some extent into doing this. Um, that adds a whole layer of, of complexity to what happens when these guys fight the first order. Like they're not just killing random fascist stormtroopers. They're killing, you know, people who are actually not fully responsible for their actions. Um, and the logical endpoint of that would have been to give them agency that they had been denied. And for whatever mysterious reason they didn't. And I, I will say that I think one of the things that, I think has filtered back from that. I don't know the extent to which this interplays, but the other, the other novels I read um, that, that really do an excellent job of sort of filling in gaps is the Thrawn trilogy. Did you ever read uh, any of the original Timothy Zahn Thrawn novels? So my exposure to basically all of the expanded universe was like, I would get them in dark horse comic form. So I would like touch oh, upon the true. themes and have incredibly cool visuals, but not like the depth of the novels. Hmm. That was actually my exposure as well. I I hadn't read any of, of Zahn's original work, you know, and I, I never really had an occasion to to do it. Um, but you know, when these when these came out, I saw, uh, you know, the, when I started diving into the novels again after Rise of Skywalker, I instantly found on like Amazon, you know, the he had done three novels: one in 2017, 2018, one in twenty nineteen, sort of chronicling the new canon Thrawn. You know, he was so popular in the original trilogy. In, in the original uh, expanded universe that, you know, you basically had to bring him back. And I believe, I, I, I don't watch it, but I know there's a show in which he appears, Rebels. I yeah, think, he's right? a regular feature of Rebels. Yeah, I, I might, that alone might get me to check it out because he's he's such a fascinating character. Um, but what it, what they do is, you know, Thrawn is, is this sort of Chiss officer who comes in and he's a complete outsider in the Empire. And what they what we see through him is sort of how the empire adjusts and how it's sort of grand strategic approach to suddenly governing the galaxy um, is starting to flesh out in the years before uh, the Battle of Yavin. Um, you know, Thrawn is what they, they, they sort of around with this chronology a bit and they sort of, uh, you know, change some things that they had with the original expectations. I don't think they're going to go for the Yuuzhan Vong, um, thankfully, um, but they have him meet the emperor. They have him, 
established this prior connection through uh, who he believes to be dead Anakin Skywalker. Um, and of course, because the Emperor knows otherwise, that gives him sort of a certain credibility. And we see Thrawn then rise through the ranks of the Imperial military. And it, it creates a few opportunities for them to explain some of the peculiarities of, of the, uh, the original, of the original trilogy. Oh, oh, you a great one. You know, you know how there's smugglers, right? Of course. Do you, do you ever wonder how, like, there were so many smugglers in Star Wars? I mean, I think like why they were smuggling things all the time. Why, like, you know, they've got ships. They presumably have ports. Like, you know, what illegals? They're, you know, they're not trafficking drugs. I assume. I, I don't know what Han was running, but um, <laughs> you know, I what what is the need to constantly smuggle? And there's a scene in in one of the the Thrawn books where they sort of kind of explain that the reason there are so many smugglers is because the Empire. Has, has complete, you know, after the trade federation collapsed, after all these corporations collapsed and the empire absorbed all their assets, the empire basically maintains itself through just heavy taxation of trade. Um, basically like a constant trade war like we've got now, except it's all, it's all aimed at, at, at one population and that's the galactic population. And so they, you know, the, 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 the books kind of reference that, you know, well, the reason people are constantly smuggling things is because the only way they can afford anything. Uh, and that one insight alone just completely adds like a whole new sense of reason to why Han Solo would do half the things he does, why he, you know, would not be a fan of the empire, obviously, but also not be eager to go out of the way to like fight it. Uh, and it adds some sort of like quality to his final turn. It obviously doesn't like, you know, change it completely, but you sort of get a better of appreciation for why it was not an automatic decision to do what he did and save uh, Luke at the last moment. Why, you know, he could have easily just gone on, made a buck, lived his life happily. And instead he chose to come back and help his friends. I, I think that was it, it. You know, Zahn is, is great because he's sort of a guy who had a lot of hand in the old expanded universe. And he clearly knows star Wars. He's been around forever doing it. Um, probably as long as you and I have been alive. And so he can bring that sort of maturity and experience with these, with these threads and sort of weave them together. I was, I was trying to pull up the, the specific law that like is weird about like uh, territory to state shipping for the U S as a, as a parallel. Oh, that, the Jones think, Act. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I, I have a, I have a friend who works at, uh, at, at customs and border protection, the non baby snatching division uh who has to deal with that all the time um but yeah i mean it's basically like if the jones act existed for every every like state and you had to like you know only ship things to virginia on virginia things i i'm butchering it a little bit but like sort of that layer of just like bureaucratic ridiculousness and and tariffization and all, all sorts of that just imagine like doing that everywhere um and that's sort of the economic structure that the empire in its quest to build the Death Star, to build this massive Imperial fleet to govern this this galaxy that it's suddenly obtained. Um, that's sort of the economic underpinning of it all. I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating, uh, not that Star Wars does a ton on the on the economics, but when they touch upon it, right? Like the, the what, because like, what is the, the industry of Star Wars? It's like, it's, it's, it, it um, there's a, there's a Kiernan Healy, tweet which is the irregularly delete so it's gone so i'm gonna pull it my best for memory but it's 
Star Wars is good because it shows the three accurate job, the three jobs in the future are most likely a servant of the uh, authoritarian military state or criminal or peasant. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we really don't get a ton more beyond that, even like when we get to see like like the Mandalorian, which spends a ton of time playing around in that space, we see, oh, um, Bounty Hunter, that's either contracted to criminal or to the state. Um, we see Jawas, which are like nomadic scavengers existing on the edge of society. Um, there's really not like much beyond that. There's there's the there's the the shrimp farmers. Um, like there's not a lot that we that happens. Um, and the idea that what the the empire's hold on power is as much through its uh, massive military as through the way it turns that uh, military inwards for extraction um, and to secure extraction that it uh, and I don't this might be something you would know know more about is if they any of the novels cover like the corporations are just absorbed into the empire or disbanded or are they like it and. Not that I imagine there's a ton of like, here's the licensing for like who gets to smuggle it or transport this from where. But it seems like if they've centralized it all that way um, and then they've uh, built a tax base on interplanetary shipping. Oh, I, I believe, I believe, you, you know, even I am sometimes surprised at how much like ridiculous, you know, subtle nooks and crannies they get into in the old expanding universe. I, I did read, um, as part of this whole binge, I, I wasn't going to bring it up because it's not part of the new canon, um, but it's excellent and it's very recent. It's called uh, Darth Plagueis. Uh, okay. It came out, I believe, shortly before they they nuked the old one. Um, but it's basically a, a summary of how um, you know it, it captures you know Palpatine's mentor and his sort of plan to bring the Sith plan to fruition. Um, and his interactions with uh, Palpatine and Palpatine's rise and sort of all that. It's its very old expanded universe. And it was kind of jarring to go back and read um, because it's very deep on the whole Darth Bane lineage. It's very deep on the whole, uh, you know, sort of arcane stuff from the early Clone Wars content that they've they've now kind of just shifted entirely over to the, the TV shows being the main sort of construct of that. Um and it goes a lot, actually, surprisingly, into the financial systems of um, the Republic because it has to, because the Darth Plagueis was uh, a member of a species called the Moon, the Mun, M-U-U-N. Um, the Mung is how we've saying them, it. Yeah, you see them. They're the, the dudes with the tall, narrow heads that are kind of grayish in, um, you'll see them on, like, the ruling council. Uh, and he's a member of, I, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like the intergalactic banking clan or something. Um, and the, the explanation for how he's able to do a lot of his Sith stuff and how he's able to do this is he just basically buys everybody off. Um, you know, like five people know that he's actually like a Sith Lord and they're pretty well compensated for it. And he has secret bases and he can just afford it because he's just tapped right in to the financial hub of it. Um, and so that got me kind of curious afterwards, is like how, what did, what happened to the banks after the empire took over? And, you know, for some extent, just to basically keep society running, I think they let stuff like the intergalactic banking clan run. Um, 
but then the other stuff, they just kind of, you know, took over like, so, oh, well, the trade federation's gone. Now we have all these freighters, so we'll just use them for ourselves. Um, we'll convert some of this stuff to sort of weaponry for our nascent military. Um, and then we'll just kind of like sell off the rest. And so you see, you know, I, I believe that was a trope a lot in some of the, the old expanded universe with the gap between, you know, uh, uh, episode three and four in that, you know, people just, you run into people who are just using old, uh, Confederate stuff all the time because they just bought it off the empire when it was, when they were liquidating it. Um, but yeah, you you know, we see some of the, the, uh, the economic aspect, um, and it, it does, you know, obviously to some people it might be like dense and boring, but it does provide some interesting motivations because in the Thrawn novels, part of Thrawn's rise to power is sort of hunting down this, this strange syndicate that is disrupting, uh, you know, Imperial weapon shipments, you know, the, the, the overarching sort of menace that they have to deal with is the fact that for some reason they need a lot of resources. And at first you think, well, they need a lot of resources because they're building a lot of new ships uh, and Thrawn later pieces together. They're actually sort of building other stuff. Um, but, you know, then then you have to protect those supply lines and somebody's attacking those supply lines. And so you get into a lot of the logistics of it. And, you know, you're right It'll, that you have farmers who farm food. You have miners who extract valuable ores for spaceships. Um, but, you know, I don't th- you have artisans on Naboo selling like handmade scarves. But you don't really have people doing other jobs. Like I, you know, I'm sure there may be like entertainers and stuff, but I don't know what the equivalent of like the 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 galaxy Silicon Valley is. I mean, if if anything, we know that the galaxy technologically has been pretty stagnant uh, for at least like ten thousand years. It's five thousand. There's one big leap in uh, five thousand BBY, um, and like we know that because. Well, and we don't know if that's true in new canon. We know in Legends canon, there is a time when, like, the Jedi still had to have, like, backpacks with cords to power their lightsabers, and there were hyperspace gates. Um, It's super cool. It feels feels suitably old yet in the universe. Um, And then there's a great, like, 40-year period where technology gets updated, and then it stays up that level of updated... Um, and basically unchanged, really, until uh, the Empire starts mucking about with um, Death Stars, which is like the one yeah, innovation. The other thing about that is that, that we, you know, there, there are two basic great sci-fi properties in, in American culture, and one of them is Star Wars, and the other is Star Trek. And Star Trek solves all that by having replicators. You know, the fact that they can just plug something in and have it make whatever they need. They don't really need to have, like, farmers or anything anymore, because people just, like live their enlightened liberal democratic selves um, in a post-scarcity world. But Star Wars has to actually answer these questions. They have to answer like, where did they get all the metal for the Death Star twice? You know, where did they, you know, get all the food to feed the people on Coruscant? Because there's like a bajillion of them and there's obviously no farms there. Um, And that sort of gets them the opportunity to have some like very awkward stuff. Like, well, yeah, there's, you know, there's planets where they mine all this stuff. And I guess what? The workers are not treated well. Um, you know, there's planets where they farm all this stuff and guess what? The empire doesn't really charge them very much for it. Or they, you know, they, they don't get to charge the empire very much. For it. Um, you know, it offers a level of nuance, um, in sort of wrestling with these questions of how do you build a society, an intergalactic society that functions. And sure, if you have the Republic, it's bloated with corruption because people need to get things from one place to another. Uh, and they need to navigate this, this, you know, New York city like bureaucracy to just do basic things. Uh, 
but at the same time, you know, they also have, you know, basic occupations and jobs and things they need to do. Um, I do think that is one advantage that Star Wars has is that they can have more, for lack of a better word, ordinary people participate in things. Well, and you can tell stories with Star Wars tells stories with with scarcity built in and with um, it does a we have an ancient regime. We have a and then we have a like rough um, autocratic turn from that. Um which is always the stuff fascinating, and in the um, and in the background to the the standard story of uh, this family of space wizards who have some disagreements. Um, but it's really interesting to see what you do with that built into the the structure of the world. And one thing um, I wanted to to touch upon while while you're still while we still got time is. Um, there aren't really we don't really have historians post the destruction of the Jedi archive that we know of um, in the canon, and so the the way we mark all time in, in Star Wars, and as a podcast focused heavily on Star Wars canon and situating stuff, we've been using the uh, the system that debuted in the novels, and I think has been and popularized by Wikipedia, which is where you mark everything from the Battle of Yavin. Um, yeah. Which is a, which is a easy stand-in for this is everything from A New Hope, but it's also I think just a fascinating way to demark time, um, and I think you had some thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I I, I I think we discussed this on on Twitter recently, but I, I I'm willing to accept it. Um, you know, I'm willing to cut. Don't get me wrong, I'm not one of these fans who like demands my way or the highway. I cut like. I, I do think that just to, uh, to, I need to get this somewhere in case a grand jury ever asks me about it. Uh, I, I do think about 20% of Rise of Skywalker's problems are not their fault. I think a lot of it comes from Carrie Fisher's death, um, which was extremely tragic and obviously extremely unexpected. And if you want, if you do see whatever arc they tried to assemble in these films, it clearly goes, okay, the Han film, the Luke film, and then the Leia film. And except you can't really have the Leia film if 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 Carrie Fisher isn't around to film her scenes, and you obviously are not going to recast that role. Uh, so, you know, I think that's why I, I have a suspicion, and I would love for somebody to do like an eight thousand word dive into why and how the Rise of Skywalker came about. Um, I, I'm like waiting for Vanity or uh, or Variety magazine or or the Hollywood Reporter to just drop that feature any day now. Um, but I, I get the sense that the only reason they got, you know, uh, Harrison Ford to come back very briefly for that one scene and Billy D. Williams to have such a, 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 you know, a large role in it is because um, they were basically filling the parts that she was supposed to fill, um, which I think is tragic. And I think that's it's unfortunate that that sort of complicated things for them. Um, with regards to the calendar, you know, in, in addition to cutting him slack, I, you know, I get the, the desire to. I think the Yavin system makes sense prior to 1999. Um, I think because, because, you know, when people are, if you're sitting there in 1997 and you need to figure out when something happens, you're basing it off like the first thing that you know, and that's the, the original Star Wars film. And so when you're able to have that as sort of your mental anchor point, your year zero, it's easy to get everything in the expanded universe to fall into place. I, I think it's sort of still tenable um, through episode two. But I got to be honest with you, the mental system I 
personally like I, I I realized this after we talked about it is that I demarcate everything based on the fall of the transition from Republic to empire um, for two reasons. One, it's a much more natural year zero um, for things to happen because it's such a dramatic shift and because it solves the sort of like weird gap that between the two films by simply having everything take place 19 years later. And it gives you a better sense of the passage of time. And I think this conversation was sparked because they're trying to do it off of the new calendar, right? They're trying to do something new. Yeah. So the um, the visual dictionary for Rise of, I think it's Rise of Skywalker, suggests that they might be dating it from the destruction of Coruscant Wait Strike Through Hosnian Prime. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> The the planet. I, yeah, I gotta that, say, I love. I'm I, I enjoying the new canon, but the the whole it's it's extremely obvious that they like quickly backtracked on that and said, "Oh, just kidding, they didn't blow up, you know, Coruscant. They blew up, uh, yeah, we'll call it Hosdian Prime. That's what they destroyed because the fans were like, oh my god, you just destroyed the galactic capital. Why? It doesn't even make sense.' I it is it is retroactively changing a character who died to Poochie. Um, it's like, yeah, no, no. Yeah. Like saying, oh, oh, Boba Fett didn't fall in the Sarlacc pit. That was uh, uh, Yoba Fett. You know, that was the other guy. Uh, you know, I, I will say that if they had actually destroyed Coruscant, I would be slightly more willing to tolerate that as the year zero. Um, but let's be real here. The biggest shift in either the old canon or the new was the fall of the Old Republic. Uh, because that's when like everything changes, you know, you, you everything, uh, the Republic had been around. I, I actually looked this up cause I was curious about it. Um, because I, I saw that the, the podcast was named after the old Republic. And so I was curious what they had changed and whether KOTOR was still Canon. And I know that they've taken elements of KOTOR. They, they mentioned Malachor five, they mentioned the Mandalorian wars. Um, but they don't have the KOTOR two or those films or Darth Revan, or any of that, not the films, the, the games, um, right. in it. And and so I guess they don't really need to have sort of a complex chronology anymore. But even so, like, I don't want to have to think about the original Star Wars film as being, like, negative 40 years or whatever. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. And I, and yeah, I, so I think part of it is because, like, you didn't create a good enough narrative arc to justify this. <laughs> Yeah, I think I don't think the the uh, calendar dating from Hosnian Prime's destruction is going to do, and it has uh, no resonance in or out of universe. Um, it's a really hard sell. If they had taken the time um, in Force Awakens to make the worlds that get destroyed feel as though there were government and also people there who that there were stakes at it, we know nothing about. Alderaan except a few sentences and that gives it so much stakes in um in the new hope and there's less than that um with much greater impact in theory for anyway it's a, it's not a point that's going to stick um and so i think they either you date it to the fall of the republic which makes um which i'll get back to it in just a second but i'm wondering would you start the fall of the republic from the uh do you pick um, the ascension of uh, Palpatine after um, the attempted uh, Jedi coup? Do you pick the abolition of the Senate? Where do you mark the fall of the Republic? Ooh, 
Ooh, that's actually a really good point. Because if they're basing it not off the Battle of Yavin, but of the, the abolition of the Senate, that actually is a much more justifiable um, way to do it. I mean, you get the whole Roman thing of, like, when did the Roman Empire really fall? Um, which is a nightmarish debate that I remember vaguely from, like, a college history class. Um, but I, I think you can, I, you know, obviously Palpatine was not this subtle, but, you know, the early Roman emperors, they were like, oh, yeah, this is still the Roman Republic. I'm just like some dude with a fancy title who happens to have absolute power, but it's still the Roman Republic. Um, Palpatine didn't really do that. He was like, yeah, just kidding. This is an empire now. Uh, enjoy. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, the I will say just one last point about the novels is that they actually make a lot more sense of why the Senate existed still for 19 years. Um, and you get a little hint of this in, in, in uh, episode four when he says, like, well, how will the emperor remain king control? One of the characters in the Thrawn trilogy um, actually kind of interacts with the Senate a lot. They're, they're politicians. I think they appeared rebels. Um, they're, they're a governor named Price or something. Um, and they basically spend most of the second or, th yeah, the, the, the first or second novel, they basically spend most of it as like a senatorial aid. And what they do is they work, I, you know, I guess the American equivalent would be the, the constituent services. You know, people go <laughs> to them. And they say, help, I need access to, like, my Medicare or whatever the Galactic Republic's version of Medicare is. And, you know, these people basically are charged with, like, helping out with that. And so you can see that, like, the bureaucracy of it, the executive branch functioning, has actually kind of interestingly been reversed. Where the emperor, he's not really doing much of, like, the actual day-to-day, -day, like, grass, nuts, and bolts governance of the empire. He's not caring about what you know, healthcare rates are set at or whether drug prices are affordable or any of the stuff that like the current presidential debate is about. He doesn't care. He's too busy doing his Sith stuff and his empire stuff and bringing the empire to heel. And the people who actually deal with that are the Senate. And they fill the sort of like semi-democratic role in offsetting or alleviating probably whatever pressure could mount politically. I mean, we know he's a Sith Lord, but they don't know that. Um, that could, you know, sort of destabilize the nascent empire. And so when they create the Death Star, it's actually kind of this great moment because they think, oh my God, we don't need to do this anymore. We don't need to spend all this time dealing with these people's problems. We don't need to spend all this time figuring all this stuff out. We'll just point the Death Star at them and they'll just do whatever we say. We'll just threaten to destroy their planet and we won't have to worry about this stuff anymore. It's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. We'll abolish the Senate. And they abolish the Senate and the Death Star is destroyed two days later, and then it's like, well, shit. Now what do we do? It is. I, um, Long-time listeners, and also anyone who interacts with me online will know um, that I am somewhat attached to the Tarkin Doctrine as a concept in fiction, which has the weirdest path to canon um, because it, like, stumbles through, like, a... It's fleshed out in a, like, role-playing guidebook, and... Um, but it's one of the interesting things of what is the uh, what is the solution to a galactic empire? What is the way you do it? And especially what is the way you do it um, in the face of armed insurgency? And uh, it's interesting because I hadn't put this together, right? That the Senate was doing the mediating role of like getting the public who the people who had the energy and the ability were still going to the Senate and then getting needs met or at least having they were spending their energies on that instead of thinking there's no other way except you know blowing up imperial installations 
Um, and then we get Tarkin, who uh, engineers his plan. Well, there will be governors, and they will just rule. And if planets uh, become hostile, then they won't exist anymore. Or not even if they become hostile, but if they become a host to a faction that is hostile, they won't exist anymore. And that's the fear will keep the galaxy in line. But uh, the transition that is that is alighted over, but I guess fleshed out in the novels, is that no, no, no. Uh, benign bureaucracy and constituent services will keep the galaxy mostly okay until we have our super weapon. Right. I, I, I also, I should, I should say, I don't want to oversell the Thrawn novels. I think they're excellent. I think they're worth reading if you're into this stuff. They're not like a comprehensive guide to the political economy of, of the Empire pre-Gavin. Um, but they do hint at a lot of this stuff to give like some explanation as to why these things still exist. And the idea that the Senate was not simply, you know, as soon as he declared the new order, it was suddenly like meaningless. But that it actually fulfilled some sort of transitional role towards his eventual goal. I mean, that's really interesting. And it certainly explains why like Princess Leia was still dealing with it. Like why else would, you know, she's a princess. She could just be hanging out on Alderaan. Why is she bothering with this this archaic institution um, that is supposedly powerless? And that even you know she she tells Darth Vader, I believe, like, look, I'm a senator. You can't like do this to me. Why does it have any of that sort of cachet? And it's like, well, because Palpatine, powerful and evil as he is, still kind of needs it to like solve a bunch of other problems. I mean, it's one of the things, right? Like we and we mentioned the Roman emperors earlier. Right? They keep it around for a while. Um, I want. I'm trying to remember if there's even one who like outright abolishes it or if they just like stop going and it just becomes like a club where people hang out and pretend to have power they once had. But it's the it's appropriately messy, I think, um, which is something that the uh, the universe does well is having lots of, of loose ends and untidy bits and feeling like it is the uh, inheritor of centuries or if not millennia of lived tradition um absolutely and you know i, I will say this just to, to, to you know, help bring it back to the the point we originally discussing is that i think that's one of the strengths and one of the things that gives me some confidence um for the direction that they're taking at least the novelizations is that they're taking the opportunity to clearly think through and they're giving the writers some room to sort of explain why does count dooku decide that he's not going to be a Jedi master anymore. Uh, why does, uh, you know, the death stars creation cause like 20 years? Um, why do all these things happen that the movies hint at? And what are all these things that, you know, either because the original trilogy did a very good job hinting them or because Lucas kind of fell short of, of carrying out his original vision for this prequel trilogies. Why are things the way they are? And what ways can we exploit that for, for dramatic potential? And I think, you know, if, if they keep doing like they are, I know they've, they're planning another, uh, another tr uh, trilogy of books for, for uh, Thrawn. I, I can tell you, I'm going to read it right away because I, I think they're going to be really interesting in terms of what the future of Star Wars is now that the films seem to be, seem to be gone for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I am. Um, I am very confident. I think in the direction of the uh, non-film media associated with Star Wars going forward. I think the Mandalorian managed to tell um, as close as we've gotten so far to a reconstruction story in the Star Wars universe. 
Yes. Um, I think, <laughs> and I know, I know, uh, for listeners not yet familiar with Matt's work, Matt, one of Matt's recurring things is that there are very few reconstruction stories and maybe the best reconstruction movie made is Wild Wild West. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you have a Wild Wild West podcast, I'll go on that talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have The Mandalorian. That is that is the closest we get. But I think it's interesting right. to see where there's – what energy they're spending, what parts of this uh, vast universe and also vast – timeline that they explore and i think um the stuff that gets it a little not away from the force i think the force is pretty integral to how you tell star wars stories but away from like one specific family of force users has been making it a really compelling narrative um yeah any 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 last thoughts anything you want to want to share with our readers listeners i i will say um and this is actually kind of coincidental, but uh, I, I, I've started playing the original KOTOR 2 again. And I am so depressed while playing it that they never made a KOTOR 3. And that they, as of yet, have not done so and devoted the resources towards making it what it could be. Because it is one of my favorite video games I think I've ever played. In terms of, of the storytelling and the complexity and the depth. Even you know, though it was a flawed final probably in its own ways but it, it's so good um and the quality is so high even with all those flaws um i i really hope that's the next direction they take it and i hope they leave all this right skywalker stuff behind i hope they go back four thousand years and say hey let's see what revan and the jedi exile were up to because i noticed you know i, I looked at the timeline real quick before i came on just to, just to make sure i didn't get anything wrong with the new stuff um they have explained basically nothing about the old stuff. Um, we know Darth Bane existed because of the rule of two. Um, we know that the Galactic Republic has been around for at least a thousand years, maybe more. Um, but they are leaving that very blank. And I think that's one part of the canvas that I hope they fill. And I think that's hopefully one part of the canvas you'll be able to help them fill at some point. Well, at the very least, we will have a version of what was written before in audio format for them to poke through. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to this episode. It was an absolute delight, Matt. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, and thank you for listening to this episode of a people's history of the old Republic. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at PhotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. If you have anything you want to see us address in an episode while we're on our narrative hiatus, please tweet or email us your ideas and suggestions. They have never been more likely to become part of an episode. All right, I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. Matt can be found at, at FordM on Twitter. Regular co-host Luke can be found at Luke is amazing on Twitter and may the force be with you. <laughs>